You are listening to a sermon preached at Still Bay Baptist Church in Still Bay, South Africa. For more information, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you be blessed in listening to God's Word today. Yes, Father, thank you that we can come and quieten ourselves before you, um, before your grace, grace and your goodness, and our desire is that we will meet with you. Our desire is that we will know you and experience you and be changed by you. We are not just here for a social gathering, we're not just here for a, a religious event, we are here because we know you and we want to know you more. And that's our prayer, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we are in a new series for this year, which is called The, um, the Pursuit of God. Um, my slide moved a bit there, so I'm sorry that it's over there. But we are going to read together through a book as a church again. Now, we did the same thing two years ago. Who can remember what book we read through then? Spiritual Life. Good. I like it when people remember what they did two years ago. Um, we are going to read through this book again, and so once a month we're going to look at one chapter. And the chapters are normally very short, it's like three or four pages. If you can't fit in four pages of good reading in your life in a month, then you need to come and see me for counseling, because there's something seriously wrong in your life. Um, I also just wanted to say, we are not going to come here and read through the book. I'm not going to read the book, I'm not even going to discuss the chapter even in much detail. What I'm going to do is I'm going to preach the Word, because that's what we do as Baptists. We preach the Bible. But it will be related to the topic that the chapter dealt with. So please prepare beforehand by reading the chapter. Now on that note, today is your last day, like I said, to write down your name on the list if you want to either get an electronic copy for free or if you want to buy a copy for 80 Rand. You can pick Afrikaans, English. You can buy four of each. I don't care. Whatever you want, you can buy. And then, like I said, every month, please read. As with most things in the Christian life, the more you put in, the more you get out. That's just how God plans sanctification to happen. Today we're going to look at the introduction. And I did send it out on the WhatsApp groups. If you didn't get it or you didn't have a chance to read it, it doesn't matter. But um, I want to deal with that because I try to remember when was the first time I read this book. And this must have been the early 2003 or 2002, somewhere there. And it was the introduction that grabbed hold of me. Because I felt when I read that introduction that this guy knows what's going on. This guy's got his fingers on the spiritual pulse of the word. And I didn't even know him, A.W. Tozer. And my son was eventually named after A.W. Tozer because the A stands for Aiden. Um, but this book where he says um, that we live in an age where, and I mean he was writing from 1948. It's even more true and more profound nowadays. He says we live in an age where we've never had so much access to such good theology and Bible teaching. Never ever before in the history of the world has there been so much knowledge about the Bible, about theology, so much spreading, so much availability. Fifty years ago, if you wanted to get a Bible to someone in China, you had to find someone who's willing to go there, smuggle a Bible in, meet up with a guy, hope you're not caught, um, give the Bible to him. They have to hide the Bible all day long, 
Um, nowadays, you just get on a VPN and you send them a link in China and say, hey, download your own Bible. Isn't it phenomenal? There's no excuse anymore to say, I don't have access. I, d- I didn't know. Access to sermons and teachings online. Access to warnings about which t- teaching online not to listen to is equally available as well. We are blessed beyond. I remember reading Andrew Murray's biography when they spoke about the joy of receiving a Christian book. So then his uncle from Scotland would on the ship send them Christian books and they would wait months for this book. And when they get the book, they read the book and they enjoy it and they pass it along. We, for months if not years, had boxes full of Christian books in the kitchen that nobody wanted. Now some of them were rubbish. I threw them away before anyone could read them. Um, But they were good books there. Why didn't we take it? Because we're so overwhelmed with availability. And yet he says this thing. However, I wonder if there was ever a time when true spiritual worship was at a lower ebb. There's a lot of worship. A lot of people are gathering today in groups. There's a lot of spiritual. Oh, and I have a... I I, I experience spirituality. But how much true spiritual worship is really happening? Um, In his days, the thing started that he called spiritual entertainment, and it has exploded. Spiritual entertainment is that, where you guys are an audience, and here is a show. And the bigger and the better the show is, the better the worship is. Where in the Bible do you get that as the picture of church or gathering or worshipping? So little nowadays of people really coming, bowing the knee before God and making it about Him. For many people, Christianity has become something that God has never intended. For many people, Christianity has become purely intellectual head knowledge. So it's about how much do you know? How much have you studied? How many degrees do you have? How many Greek words do you know? Can you pass a Hebrew verse? And this idea of, it's just purely knowledge. And these are the people that love the fact that they know so much. These are the people that love to debate with other people about things. These are the people you love not to visit for coffee because they always want to debate with you about trivialities or secondary things of the gospel. So It's become a purely head knowledge thing. For some people, it's become purely a social tradition. I come to church because I come to church. I've always done it. I like the seats, and they gave me some good coffee today, and I smiled, and I like the people around me. I like the vibe. It's nice. It's good. Now, these people are the people that get very knorach. What's a good English word for knorach? Grumpy. When things change. Um... Renee and, and Russell had a great idea to move the chairs a bit around, to pack all the chairs in the front in a block so that there's more space for the tea drinking and stuff. These are the people that would walk and say, uh-uh, that's not how the chair should be. I don't see symmetry. There should be a one block on this side and one. How dare you now change the chairs? The, um, these are the people that get very upset when you challenge them to change. When you challenge them and say, look, that's what God says. You are not there. Get there. No thanks. I'm very comfortable. I'm very happy where I am. Um, another group is the group for whom Christianity is purely an emotional experience. 
So church was good when it felt good. When someone rolled on the floor laughing and, and, and someone spoke in tongues or the music was just so heavy and so good. And man, that bass player, he just know what he's doing. It's like this emotional experience. I measure my Christianity on how many emotions I felt while I was there. Um, what is the main problem with all these things? Because in, the, in themselves, there's nothing wrong with intellectual knowledge. There's nothing wrong with having good Christian habits and having a social in, in enjoyment of it. There's nothing wrong in having an emotional experience. We should. The problem is that it often happens without God. It's no longer about God. It's about that. It's about the knowledge. It's about the social. It's about the experiences, about the emotions. Now imagine you ran your marriage like that. You decide my marriage is going to be a purely intellectual business. I'm going to read all the books there are on women. And after I read all of them, I'll know about 2% of what is to be known. Um, I will study my wife. I will figure out that she likes to have a coffee just this way. And she likes to have it placed next to her bed at 17 minutes past 6 in the morning. And I'm going to do that for her. And intellectually, we're going to get this thing right. Or what if your marriage becomes purely a social tradition where you just go through the motions? Now, one thing I found in my journey as a biblical counselor is that men are often very happy with that. Women not. Women are saying, you're taking me for granted. It's no longer about us. There's no relationship here. You just go through your emotions. You go to work, you come back, you watch TV, you drink your beer, you go play your golf on a Saturday. It's just emotion for you. Now, again, all those things are important parts of a relationship, even with God. Intellectual knowledge of God is good. A social gathering experience of God is good. Um, emotions experience with God is good. But it can never be the center. Those things can't be the center of your marriage with your wife. What should be the center? Um, communicating. Knowing her on a personal level. And, and experiencing life together, enjoying her company, enjoying the fact who she is and, and that she's there. Um, and that's why Tozer said about the generation when he says, For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. He's talking about biblical words. For it's not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself and unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into Him, that they may delight in His presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and the center of their hearts. And so that's our goal for reading this book this year. That in chapter 1, Tozer puts it like this. He, calls it, he, calls, he talks about the children of the burning heart. Children for whom this world is so empty, so devoid of everything it could be. The children of the burning heart who says, I want more in God. Now I know, and I must say this, and we need to be aware of this, this is a dangerous journey. It's a very dangerous journey to say, I want to experience God more. Because many people have gone on that avenue and ended up with a God that's not the God of the Bible. 
So many people get to a place where they say, they look around at church and life and they say, there has to be more than this. This can't be what God had intended. There must be more. And then Satan opens his jacket and says, let me show you more. And he lures you to things that look spiritual, that feel spiritual, that seems like it's from God, but it's not from God. Every Christian cult that I know of started by one or more than one person saying, there must be more. I'm going to go find the real God. That's true of the Jehovah Witnesses. That's true of the Mormons. Even Islam started like that, where Muhammad went to the cave to say, I want to find the truth. And this angel visited him and told him things that were not the truth. Every group, Jehovah and the Hebrew Roots Movement, started by people saying, church as we know it can't be it. There must be something more. And eventually they started to follow, to follow a Jesus that is foreign to the Bible. So we have to walk carefully. We can't be driven by desire and experience. We must be driven by the Bible to experience, to a true fulfillment of the desires we have. And so we're going to look at the biblical character today who experienced this radical change in his life. And this is a guy called Jacob. The Jacob we meet at the beginning of the story and the Jacob we meet at the end of the story when his name became Israel is a completely different person. Who's the guy that we meet in the beginning? Um, young guy? Did he grow up in a Christian home? Not a Christian home because Jesus wasn't born. They didn't know the term Christian yet. Did he grow up in a godly home? Everyone in agreement there? Okay. No, of course he is. His dad was Isaac. His grandfather was Abram. Can you imagine little Jacob and Esau sitting at the feet of their father, hearing about what God has done? For, for Isaac to say, you know what, when your granddad one day had to go rescue his nephew that was in this horrible city, and God came down in fire and destroyed that whole city. We were there on the hill. We looked at this happening there. Or Isaac saying, but you, you wouldn't even believe it. One day, your grandfather told me, hey, let's go. Mount Moriah, we're going to go there to offer to God. And I went along, and I started realizing, but we have everything. We have the wood, we have the fire, but we're missing a sheep. And so I asked my dad, but where's the sheep? And he said, God will provide. And I, okay, I'm sure God will provide. And I went on to, and then granddad put me on the altar. And he lifted that knife over my head. And just as it came down, this voice came from heaven and said, stop. Can you imagine the stories that Isaac must have told Jacob? But you know what the problem is? As far as we can tell, it was just stories for Jacob. Jacob didn't have an experience with God. Jacob didn't know God as his God. And we know this um, when you read, I think in the next couple of days, if you follow the plan, you're going to read when Jacob and Esau, at the, Jacob had the whole crookere where he cheated Esau, where he stole his blessing and stuff. And then there's a, there's a part where East, um, Isaac now sends out Esau to go hunt. And very quickly, Rebekah and Jacob makes a plan. They bring a sheep and Isaac is like, but how did you get back so quickly? Hunting takes a long time. I went on a hunting trip for four days and we didn't shoot anything. I don't know why they call it a hunting trip. It was a trip. Um, but he says, how did you get back so quickly? Um, and what did he say? What did Jacob, as Esau now said, who remembers? The Lord provided, your God provided. It wasn't his God. 
He lived in a Christian, in a godly home, surrounded by godly parents, godly testimony, and he looked at them and says, your God provided. It's not my God. It wasn't his God. He was, and we see it from his life as well, he was driven by comfort. We read he loved being gentle in the tents. He didn't want to go out in the sun and hunt. He lived gently in the tents. And he was always trying to make his own plans to make his life good. If not conniving his brother with a pot of lentil soup out of his birthright, then cheating for the blessing and stuff. He realized, if I'm not going to make my life, no one is going to make it for me. And he stood by himself. And eventually that had to cause him that he had to run away because Esau wanted to kill him. That's Jacob in the beginning. Jacob in the end is very different. Israel was a man who walked with God, who spoke with God. And there's this beautiful passage in the end when they all go to, to Egypt now and Pharaoh comes and he, and he meets a very old Jacob. And I love the question that Pharaoh asked him. He asked, how old are you? And I've decided this is something we need to start implementing and still buy. As a sign of joyous respect in company, whenever you meet someone and still buy, your first question must be, how old are you? Huh? Isn't that beautiful? Then you can testify about God's goodness in all your years. Um, sadly, we're too prideful to ever get there. But anyways, um, then Israel's answer is so telling. Israel answer said, compared to my fathers, my days were short and evil. He had a real realization of who he was as a man. In spite of all of that, God was good to him and God was his God. But he, he suddenly had something changed. Something was different about him. Now what changed? And that's what we're going to read. You can open your Bible to Genesis 28. We're going to read some verses there. We're going to read it as we discuss it. So please keep your Bible open to make sure I speak truth. Um, Genesis 28, we're going to read from verse 10. Before we read, let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, I so agree with Toza that says we don't come to your word as the end. Your word is just a pathway to you. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your truth, your message for us today. Not a message for people 4,000 years ago. It was for them as well, but a message for us today. And so, Lord, speak to us through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we read there in verse 10 where it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. So Beersheba was where he lived with his parents. Haran was where his uncle Laban lived. He's now running away from Esau that wants to kill him, and he's going to go live there. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under or near his head. The Hebrew is a bit, a bit ambiguous, but it looked like it could have been a pillow. And lay down in that place to sleep. So here is um, Jacob, and he takes a stone and puts it under his head. Poor old Jacob. He forgot to bring his memory foam pillow with him when he ran away. Now, well, we have to realize that um, their pillows were made of stones and wood. It came from Egypt, but it also spilled into there. And so it was very finely polished wood or polished stone that they used for their head, crafted to be, to be comfortable in, in their standards. Um, but it was still not very comfortable just taking a rock anywhere in the field and putting your head down and sleeping on it. 
And isn't it quite ironical that Jacob, whose comfort was to be in the tents, is now brought to a place where he has to sleep in the open on a rock. God often does that. You know what we love? We love to create comfort bubbles around us. This is how I like life. This is how my house must look. This is how my life must look. And then I am happy. If I can control this bubble, I can control my life. This is why some of you get very upset when your kids come visit in December or your grandkids because they bump your bubble. We, we, we don't put cups over there. No, just put the cup there. Oh, no, no. In this house, we don't watch TV before 4 o'clock. And your kids come and they bump that bubble the whole time. And you're like, oh, no, this can't be. And when they go, you go, oh, let's just get this bubble back in place. You know what? God is in the bubble bursting business. God comes and He says, that thing you've created that you think is good for you is the thing that's withholding you from me. And He pops it. He did it to Abraham, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's bubble became his son. The joy of finally having a son. And God comes, kill him. He did it to Joseph. Father, apple of his father's eye. His brothers worked. He stayed at home. Beautiful clothes. God comes, and he pops his bubble, and he sends him off to be a slave in Egypt. God is in the bubble-bursting business because this comfort zone that you think is what's keeping your life good is what's making your life un not meeting the goals that it can reach. It keeps God away because you are in charge. And as long as you're in charge, there's no space for God. So that's what happened to Jacob. God puts him here in the field, and then he dreams. Verse 12, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. The word could either mean ladder or steps. Um, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What a dream! Now, children's Bible love this story because it is so visual. Can you imagine that dream to see this ladder or these steps going all the way from where you are up into heaven and these angels coming up and down it, up and down it. Now, obviously, it was just a dream. He wasn't seeing what is real because earth and heaven is not divided by distance. You can't build high enough steps to get to God. It's divided in dimension, but it's trying to paint a picture for him. God is trying to tell Jacob it's something, and there's something he wants to tell him is this. The heavenly realm is not something that is so far and so out of reach that you have no hope of getting it. The heavenly realm is available. It's, there's a way to get there. And now the next verse shows the purpose of this ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abram, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall, be all, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now when I read this, I thought... If I was God, or if any of you were God, thank goodness we are not. But if we were God, and you had to meet Jacob there in the field, what would be the first thing you want to say to him? I think we sometimes think we'd go, Jacob, what's wrong, man? How many times more are you going to mess up? Now someone wants to kill you because you're so sinful. Jacob, 
What on earth are we going to do with you? When are you going to learn your lesson? And you know what? That's often what keeps us away from God. Because we think if we come close, that's the first thing he's going to say. Not you again. Goodness me. Just look at this list of sins that you've done the last 15 minutes. What are we going to do with you? Look how messed up you are. That's not God. Now, get me right. Don't get me wrong. God wants to talk to you about your sin. Your sin is a big problem. My sin is a big problem. Our sin is a big problem. But God doesn't want to start there. He wants to start by telling you how great He is. How beautiful His grace is. The plans He has. Because that brings you to a point where you want to do something about your sin. Where you come and say, God, that is amazing. But I know my sin is keeping me away from that. Please help. Please help. Get rid of my sin because I want to experience it. I want to experience you. So don't let thoughts like that keep you away from God. Um, so God comes first and He introduces Himself to Jacob. And He says, I'm the God of Abram and I'm the God of Isaac. And who's missing? Jacob. I'm the God of your grandfather. I'm the God of the father. What about you? And this whole meeting is an invite where God says, I can be your God too. I can be your God too. Um, then he reaffirms the covenant that was made with Abram and was made with Isaac. And he says, this land will be yours. Now a little bit of a side note. This is why the church and the world will never agree on the war in Israel. Because the world says, Palestine was there and Israel pitched up. It wasn't really true. But anyways, the Bible says, God says, I give this land to you. They have a right to that land. Whether our political systems agree or disagree with that, they have a right to that land. God gave it to them. And then he also goes further. So, so he first tells him, this is what I'm going to give you. And then he tells him, this is what I'm going to go do through you. Through you, the whole world will be blessed. And then God speaks some more. And listen how beautifully personal it gets. Because ultimately, it's not about what God gives you. This, the gifts He gives you is not the primary thing. What He's going to do through you is not the primary thing. The primary thing is Himself. The primary thing He gives you is Himself. Listen, verse 15. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from the sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This was Jacob's pivotal moment. We said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Did anything physically change in the area where Jacob was? Nothing. It was a dream. God didn't come and build, separate the water. God didn't come and send down a real angel to sit with him. 
in a dream, his spiritual eyes were opened and he suddenly realized God is not far away. He's right here. And I know that sometimes people's heart cry where they say, I would love to connect to God, but he is so distant. I have tried everything. I've fasted, I've prayed, I've called out. He is so far away. And God says, you're wrong. I'm here. You might not feel me. You might not see me. You might not hear me in that moment. But I am here. The reason why you're not connecting with me is not me. It's you. It's your spiritual eyes. And then Jacob's beautiful response. He was afraid and he said, this is awesome. I once listened to a sermon where the guy said, we've made awesome too small. Everything is awesome. There's even a song like that in the Lego movie. Awesome is a word that we should only use for God. Because it's something that brings awe. Something that's filled with only God is awesome. But I can promise you I'm going to use it for other things, so I apologize in advance. Um, but, he's, but he's afraid. And I think if you've ever met God and you did, weren't a bit afraid, you didn't meet God in all His glory. The people that met the true God fell on their faces. There was no buddy-buddy, chommy-chommy. There was all. Awesome, scary. Now, this isn't a, a type of fear that makes you run away. This is a type of fear that says, I need to get this God to be my God. I need to get close to this God because this God is in charge. This God is big. This God is the Lord of the universe. Um, and he draws you near. So what does Jacob then do? Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, and Beit means house and El means God, but the name of the city was Luz at first. So he doesn't build an idol, he builds an altar. What's the difference? An idol is something you make and then you start worshipping that thing. This is then your experience. My interaction with the idol is my experience. An altar is a place where I experience the real God. And what we're going to see, and God will maybe show it out in your life, is that we can make good Christian things that should have been an altar, we make an idol. Whether that be music, or whether that be even Bible reading. I'm getting my joy here, but it should actually be the pathway to getting my enjoyment in God. Um, we read on in verse 20, and it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now it sounds a bit strange. It sounds like Jacob's trying to bargain with God. He's like, okay, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. And if you do that, then I'm going to do that. Please don't ever think you can bargain with God. Life doesn't work like that. But he is not bargaining with God. He's only standing on the promises of God. He's talking about things God has already said he's going to do. And why is he doing it? Because he doesn't know God. He's heard about God. He's heard from other people. Now he meets this being in a dream, and he thinks, I hope it's God, but it could be a demon trying to deceive me. It could be a false god, 
How do I know? And so he comes to God and he says, you have made so many beautiful promises. If those promises come true, then I will know that you are God and then you will be my God. And for some of you, this journey of getting to know God is that you first need to make sure that God is God. You're still wondering. You're still wondering if there aren't better options. Aren't there better people to follow, better gods to follow? But to come to the place where you say, wow, this is God, and now he's my God. And then you see the absolute life change. He he gives his intentions, I'm going to become a worshiper now. I will worship you from now on. And then he ends with this strange line of says, and all that I have, I will give a full tenth to you. Did God say that? Did he say If you give a full tenth to me, then I will take you and I will look after you. Did God at all anywhere say, please give me 10%? Did he? Nope. So why is he doing it? Because he changed. He used to be someone who wanted to get, get, get. I'll cheat you here and I'll connive here and I'll make my plans here and I'm getting and I'm getting and I'm getting and I'm getting. Now there's a radical heart change and they say, now I'm a giver. God, I know everything good is from you. I'm going to give it back. Now, we don't often preach about money in this church. Only when we get to passages in the Bible for that. Um, We do believe you must worship God with your money. But I always find it strange when people come to me and say, Oh, you know, the church, they just always want my money. They just always asking for my money. I remember when we just moved into the town, I had to go help someone or something. And they're like, Oh, what church are you in? I'm the Baptist. And they didn't know at all what that was. But that's fine. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, it's better in here. You know, in here, in here, in here. <laughs> you know what? When someone comes to me and says things like that, I say, I think. I don't think you've ever met God. That will not be your attitude if you had a Jacob experience. If you were changed by God, to not try to hold on every single cent I earn, but have a willingness and a desire to give, then you know you've met with God. He's changed you. And you can see it in the way that you live. Okay. Um, Now, at this point you might say, I like this. I need some of this. I need an experience like this. So explain to me how big must the rock be? Which felt must I go lie in? And, and, and when can I get my ladder? Did you know that the New Testament tells us where to get our ladder? Clearly stipulated, here is your ladder. Have it. Did you know it? Okay, I'm going to read it to you. John, in John 1 verse 43, then Jesus is calling Philip. He says, Philip, come and follow me. Then Philip runs and he calls Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, I have found the one that Moses wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, Nazareth. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Working on an earthly level. That's like me telling you, I met Jesus from Bredasdorp. Bredasdorp. Oh, come on. I hope no one is from Bredasdorp. Um, but he goes with and he meets Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says this interesting thing. He looks at him and he says, Behold, an Israelite in which there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, Wow, how do you know me? He says, Nathaniel, before Philip called you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel is like, whoa. And read what Nathaniel says. 
He says, Nathaniel answered, this is John 1.49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. That's a proclamation that says you are God. You're the one from God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the man. Do we ever read that Daniel had a dream? Do we ever read in the Bible that Jesus was standing there and angels went up and down on him? No. Jesus was taking the story from Jacob to teach Nathaniel something. He says, Nathaniel, Jacob thought he can never get to God and he saw the ladder. I'm the ladder. I'm the only ladder you'll ever need to get back to God. Get to know me and you get back to God. Live with me and you will live with God. And so that is the journey that we are on, to know Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He will get you there. So conclusion, um, this is what we want to do this year. We want to learn to truly connect with God. And when I prepared this, I realized there are at least two groups that's really going to struggle with this. And if you're in this group, you might already be upset. Um, I'm going to explain to you the two groups. The first group are people who grew up in a type of Christianity or religion where experience was not part of the deal. It didn't have to do with experience. I had someone once told me, it's not about experiencing God, it's about knowing God. And I'm thinking, no, through knowing, you get to experience God. But there are people like, and I mean, maybe this is you. So Christianity is about coming to church and doing things. That's my Christianity. It's going home and going, I must read my passage today. I must say my prayer and I must pray for the manaopichrens and all these type of things. And you go through the motions and there's no experience of God. There's no, wow, like the Emmaus, the guys on the road to Emmaus when Jesus left says, didn't you feel your hearts get hot and burning when he broke the bread for us? So this is the one group that I think is really going to struggle. Because you hear me saying you need to experience God and you go, I don't think so. I don't think I need that in my life. I think I'm fine. Thank you very much. For your, you, I want to challenge you to say, follow the journey into the Bible, not into Tozer's book or my sermons. Listen to what the Bible says and ask yourself, is this what God wants? Is He happy with a form religion where He is not experienced, not known, not walked with, not communicated to with deeply? The second group, and I realized I need to explain this well, Otherwise, it sounds like I'm saying things I don't try to say. This is the group that grew up in churches that was all about experience. Everything was about you must feel it. So if the band is not big and the drums playing and the lights going and then they bring in a smoke machine, if it's not that, then it's just not good. If there weren't people crying and rolling on the floor or laughing, if there weren't people shouting out or dancing down the aisles, then it wasn't good because there wasn't any experiences. This is a group that's going to find this book challenging, and I'm going to tell you why. Because we do get to experience God with our physical senses, what we see, what we hear, but that is not the primary intent, and Toza makes it very clear. 
He wants you to teach you to experience God with your spiritual senses. When Elijah stood outside the cave waiting for God, what came past? Thunder. What God? No, that's just thunder. It's just noise. What came? Earth shaking. Was that God? No, it's just physical moving. And the Hebrew says, in the silence of no wind, and he fell down. Why? There was no experience. There were no lights. There were no smoke machines. There were no drum players. Because he met God in his spiritual senses. And why this is going to be a challenge for this group is because what has happened to some people in this group, I'm not throwing all of them in. People who have a real experience with a God can also enjoy a band in front. I'm not saying that's wrong. But what has happened is that there are churches that says we want to get the emotions and we'll do whatever it takes to get emotions. And we will manipulate to get emotions. It's like when you froth milk. You've got a good, those little frothers that you turn. You start with milk and eventually the froth is on top. They wanted to scoop off that froth and say, let's give it to the people. But they don't realize you need the milk to get the froth. You need to know God. And so often the danger in churches like this is that you start your church experiences becomes your idol. That's the thing that defines whether you have now met with God, how I felt. And so when you read the book, you will see there's obviously experiences, physical experiences. But that's not the heart cry of this book. This heart cry of this book is like Jacob who says, God is here and I didn't know it. When your heart and your soul connects with the God of the universe, and you say, this is real. This is real. And it leads to emotions, and it leads to experiences. But the connection is there. And so these two groups, I really want to challenge that you stick to the Word. I remember one um, time at summer camp, so I don't want to harbor too much on the second group, but I remember one time, there was a, no, there was a summer camp, which is a, a Baptist camp that happens outside Kimberley. It used to be massive. There were 1,300 kids at the first camp and about 500 kids at the second camp. And then you'd go into this big hall. Now you have 1,000, 1,300 kids, teenagers, with a band in front and the lights flickering and it's dark. And man, these kids are worshiping. Their hands are in the air and they are singing to God and the drummer and the bass player is there. And it's just fantastic. The next evening, everyone stands outside and the doors are closed. And time moves on, and time moves on, and the doors remain closed. And eventually one of the leaders goes and he says to the guys, hey, you need to open the door, we need to come in. He's like, no, we can't, we don't have electricity. And the guy's like, we can worship God without electricity. And the, God says, and the guy says, no, we can't. And so what they eventually did is they took the group, and there was like a side big tent that they took all the teenagers to stand there, and they had a guy in front with a guitar, and they sang the same songs. And the teenagers were standing around bored. Did they connect with God? Or did they connect with a band? There are things that help us. Oh, we love musicians. We love it. But I love that our musicians get. We are a, a, a ministry tool to get people to God. I loved when I sat there and I heard the singing from behind me was louder than the singing from front. That's what it should be. This is connecting with God and letting it bubble out in those ways. Okay, so I want to invite you on this journey. 
Psalm 34 verse 8 there says, Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not just about knowing. It's not just about having a book chop that I once gave my life to the Lord. It's knowing, tasting, and seeing God. I hope you're excited about this journey. If you haven't been excited before the service and you didn't write your name down, please go write your name down for a book. Let us walk this journey together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Yes, Father, we are so grateful for your word because without it there would be chaos as every person runs after their own idea of what it means to worship you like we have at the end of the book of Judges. Every person just does what they thought is right in their own eyes. But you've given us your word to reveal yourself to us, to reveal how we can know you, how we can experience you, how we should be living before you, how you make yourself available to us. And Lord, help us to trust that there's no better way outside the Bible to know you. There's no better way than those described inside the Bible about how to experience you. And so let us walk on this road of your word in the footstep of Jesus and get to connect with you. That we can also walk away changed. And like Jacob say, God, you've always been here. I just didn't know it. So we thank you for that in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. I hope you were blessed in hearing God's word today. For more information or prayer, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you find your life in Jesus Christ and Him alone.